3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. You're on Tuesday breakfast. It's the 31st of August and it's just hit 7am. You're joined here by me, Genevieve. I've got Evie and then in separate studios, but uh, still in sight, Fong and Carnegie. How are you all? I'm just waving through the glass. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we obviously are still in lockdown. How is everyone going? As well as can be expected. Yeah. I think. Um, it's a little bit like that, I think. Um, <laughs> I definitely think the fatigue is hitting in a little bit. Yeah. Um, I feel really lucky, though, because I'm part of my job. I get to go around and deliver um, pastries. <laughs> oh, so you get to see everyone have their day made. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, um, which has been really exciting. I've got, like, a permit and I get to, like, go out to the outer suburbs and, um, yeah, give people um, deliveries. Delicious treats. And watch their faces <laughs> light up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, apart from that, it's been pretty <laughs> yeah it's been same old for me um i i've just sort of i've decided to assume like that we're probably not going to get out for a few weeks so i've just like stopped making plans yeah <laughs> at yeah all. yeah what's exactly. a plan i don't know what that is <laughs> exactly um now i <laughs> actually something really funny that um was happening last night I decided to engage in another show (laughs) (laughs) what are you watching now I was watching this show it was like um about robots people like building these robots and like battling oh wow with them (laughs) what like as in they develop the robots (laughs) it's actually terrifying um, sorry, we're having some technical difficulties before, but I actually think we have Fung and Carnegie on now. Hello. Do yes. <laughs> Do. Yay, we're so, here. No, they just weren't speaking. <laughs> we just really wanted to listen to you two. We felt like you could carry the entire show for I'm, us. I'm speaking about something extremely weird and boring. Is it like those Boston <laughs> Dynamics robots? It's like... like- WW, it's like <gasps> boxing or like one of those wrestling shows, but these like people make these robots, like, <laughs> and they they interview them beforehand. They're like, this is like the hurricane, and like <laughs> this, it has like blades that like shoot out and like blah blah blah, and then they like get in this bulletproof arena. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I was a weird child that loved WWE. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is appealing to me. Yeah, you should get <laughs> I, I watched like three episodes last night. It was actually very entertaining. Um, how is your uh, lockdown or weeks gone, Fung in Carnegie? Um, I'm back in the stage of lockdown where I'm learning K-pop 
routines. So <laughs> nice. um, that's what I'm at. It gives, it's like so, it's like one of those things you can get obsessed with. Mm. And so you can just watch a video again and again and again and just like go into a hole and you don't know how many hours have passed. So it's yeah. a really good lockdown activity. Highly recommend. I love that. I've just been watching really old reality shows again. There's like a channel, like Seven Plus has like a terrible app. And so I've just been catching up on ones from like 2011. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there, there's some really awful like Master Chefy mm. restaurant startup kind of shows. And just like it's, I really love that because you can see the food trends that were like popular at the time. True. So like sliders. A crock and bush. Crock and bush. <laughs> oh my God. Crock and bush was the number one. <laughs> challenge macarons yeah. um yeah. there's so much like sun-dried tomato and stuff like like that was going out of fashion then but they like you can still see like people putting that in food and you're just mm. like oh, God. <laughs> um all right we should probably talk about what's on the show because it is jam-packed today um i know that uh fong uh, you have an interview? Uh, yeah, so around 8 o'clock I'm speaking to Fiona from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Um, there's an upcoming online forum put on by them as well as Melbourne University called At Risk 2021, um, looking at the policy changes needed to improve older women's housing outcomes today because uh, women aged... 45 and over are uh, real risk of homelessness in Australia, which is awful. So we're going to talk about that. Yeah, and Carnegie, you have one that's a little bit earlier, I think, first coming up. Yeah, and so that one's about um, a report that was released on um, a project into uh, economic and financial abuse and how it affects women and how it affects family violence situations. Um, and we'll be speaking with a lawyer and project manager from... Uh, CLC West Justice, uh, who helped write that report and will tell us what the findings were um, and what it's been like to work with these women. Yeah, and then just upcoming at about 10 past 8, we're going to speak to Gab McIntosh, who's a spokesperson for the Indigenous Party of Australia, which is a party that was founded in New South Wales um, and is uh, completely Indigenous-led and um, they're trying to get membership um, up in Victoria because it's been a little bit of a gap with the states. So just going to have a talk to her about um, the party and their policies. Um, but I reckon we'll go to a couple of announcements and we'll be back with the news headlines very shortly. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. Um, if you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline 
Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You're on Tuesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to take you through some of the news headlines this morning. Um, first up, uh, the um, regional town of um, in western New South Wales um, of Wilcania has been badly uh, affected by COVID-19. I'm sure a lot of you have been seeing some of the news about this, but um, the town has a huge First Nations community um, and there's been a lot of uh, backlash and um, people critiquing the federal government uh, for their really bad handling of the vaccination rollout, especially in First Nations communities. Um, a lot of people saying that there was no, absolutely no plan. Um, uh, there has been several hundred Indigenous people that have been affected by COVID-19 in the latest outbreak, uh, with a lot of them coming from the west um, and the far west of New South Wales. Uh, obviously, this has been largely concentrated in the Aboriginal town of Wilcania, um, which is obviously extremely concerning. Um, uh, I believe that they have a total number of infectious rates um, close just under uh, a thousand at the moment. Um, and the state and federal governments continue to point to the vaccine rollout when queried about the support available to Western New South Wales. So there's kind of a lot of deflection in terms of blame and all that kind of stuff. Um, has anyone else been seeing some of this? Yeah, the um, the constant deflection is just emblematic of just how the entire vaccine rollout has been really. Like when there's a problem up top, they want to blame individuals for it or they want to blame individual clinics. Um, it's all about just sort of dismissing um, the federal government responsibility, which is what their job was in the first place, to make sure the most vulnerable people got vaccines and were protected before an outbreak happened. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was reported yesterday that the federal government was actually warned 18 months ago um, <laughs> of the of the need to protect Wilcania. Um, there was some leaked correspondence seen by The Guardian um, the Mari Ma Aboriginal Health Corporation wrote to Indi Indigenous Australians Minister Ken Wyatt back in March last year. So just when, wow. you know, things were starting to get pretty bad over here, outlining the fears that they had uh, if if COVID were to spread there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and then there was also uh, a second letter um, that was sent last week to Scott Morrison, uh, calling on him to take control of of the outbreak there. So, which was also copied to the New South Wales Premier and the Federal Health Health Minister Greg Hunt. So, it's not like they didn't know. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, they they were warned back back last uh, back last year in, in March 2020 um, that the town's community was at great risk because of um, things like overcrowded and poorly maintained housing, a lack of food security, highly mobile population, low health literacy, and issues with poorer health and chronic diseases. So, um, yeah, it's coming back. Coming back now on the on the government, um, but yeah, they've been. I mean, it's not like there hasn't been an effort to support the community. There've been quite a few grassroots um, campaigns and fundraisers to help not only raise money but also to send um, packages and and things like that to the community. So yeah, we can we can put some links in our show notes later today. Yeah, definitely. Um, going on off the back of that, I just wanted to mention, I'm not sure if anyone, I haven't watched it myself, but I'm not sure if anyone else has seen, um, the new documentary titled Incarceration Nation, um, which you can actually watch for free on SBS On Demand. Yeah, um, I actually watched it Did you? How did, yeah, what did you think? It's, um, it's a difficult watch. Yeah. Definitely. But, uh, for, it's a... I don't know. I have mixed feelings about um, depicting, not depicting, showing the realities of that level of violence. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a really, really important documentary for everybody to watch, especially people who are not Indigenous, uh, and understand the absolute absence of accountability from the police, from the justice systems involved, from politicians. Um, and it, it really shows how embedded it is in, in culture and how it links so completely to colonialism. Mm. So for those reasons, I think super important watch. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to watching it. I've seen a lot of, like, you know, I've seen commentary in the last day or so um, from other um Aboriginal activists and prison abolition activists talking about how, like, you know, yeah, it, it's a it's a very distressing watch in terms of seeing that up front and up close. But also it is great that for the first time it really feels like we've gotten the voices of these people in their situation to understand, um, especially when they haven't been given that opportunity enough, especially on mainstream media, like, and SBS is part of that. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, did anyone else have any news headlines? Oh, yeah. Um, if you're in Victoria and you're listening to us, please keep checking the exposure sites. There are quite a few on um, today's list. It's past 1,000. I was just having a look at the age. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, there's quite a few more in my neighbourhood too. So, um, you know, all the usual caveats stay mm. safe wear your masks um try not to do too much shopping during the week yeah i've started to <laughs> avoid uh, I, I just feel like a, a, a shiver go through me whenever i go to woolies now because like we've yeah. been hit so many times um, i'm just like oh God. i don't want to single out uh brunswick barclay square <laughs> COVID Central, i don't know what it is about uh, barclay square but i feels like every day this it's like tier one or tier two um but that's fine i think it's such a convenient shopping center that a lot of people go there um but yeah i've like missed 
being in like tier one by like an hour or something. And I'm yeah, like, I missed the Woolies like, so close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I reckon I'm going to just play a couple of announcements, then we'll go to a track. You're listening to 3CR. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. All right, we're going to go to a track now by Tilly Jala Thomas. Um, It's titled Ningana Nyonyi. Tilly is... um, Grew up in Adelaide, um, is a singer songwriter, uh, and her father is a Nakunu man hailing from southern Flinders Ranges. Uh, Tilly uh, actually uses the um, language of Nakunu culture um, in her songs, um, and it was co written um, by her father who uh, teaches her the language. Uh, this is a new one that I found this week, so I hope you enjoy it.
That was Tilly Chala Thomas with Nyanya Nyonyi. Um, and as always, highly encourage you to support those Australian local artists during this pandemic. They're really struggling at the moment, so tune into them. Uh, yeah, you'll be much supporting them. So yesterday on Monday Breakfast, Jacob spoke with Sharon Davies, the director of Herb Faith. Indonesia Engagement Centre at the Monash University School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics and they spoke about lockdowns as well as the current state of affairs in Indonesia and why we should continue doing our part to keep each other safe. That was White Noise um, and you are on 3CR Breakfast joined by Jacob and up next we're going to have a bit of a chat about lockdowns. So with Victoria exceeding 200 days in lockdown, as we know, and parts of New South Wales overtaking the two-month mark into their current lockdown, it's no surprise that a lot of us are feeling a lot of fatigue around the current state of affairs. And last week, the Premier of New South Wales began announcing the loosening of restrictions, saying that there could be picnics outdoors with up to five people as long as they were vaccinated. Meanwhile, in regional and rural communities across New South Wales, um, there's been outbreaks in towns such as Wilcanya. So joining us now to have a bit of a discussion about lockdowns um, and to share some of her work is Sharon Davies, who is the director of the Herb Faith Indonesia Engagement Centre at the Monash University School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics. Sharon, how are you going? I'm going well, well, pretty fatigued with lockdown, but doing pretty okay. Doing okay. That's that's good to hear. Um, so, Sharon, how do you think attitudes towards lockdowns have changed between that horrific lockdown in 2020 um, and right now? Well, I think, I mean, everybody across the world is sick of lockdowns, right? They've just been going on, on and on, and it's particularly hard, I think, where there's not a clear... Um, end in sight and, and you know we, for the Melbourne lockdown last year I was in New Zealand watching um, you know people go through it in New Zealand and of course um, people go through it in Melbourne and of course New Zealand had, had had its own very tough lockdown which they're back in uh, at the moment but 
but my sense is they'll probably come out of it quicker uh, than elsewhere because the lockdown there is incredibly tough and it really restricts movement, it really restricts transmission. And while when you're in lockdown, it's really much harder, it does end a whole lot quicker. And I think that's what a lot of people are, are looking for, you know, now in Melbourne, like when is it going to end? Um, it just does seem to be going on for quite some time. Definitely. When is it going to end? That is certainly the question on, on everyone's lips. Um, and I think that the Delta strain has certainly presented some new challenges. Um, and I know you've been doing a lot of research into Indonesia as well. How do you think Australia is faring compared to our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific? Well, one of the things, you know, is in Australia, we're in lockdown now. It doesn't feel like any kind of a privilege to be in a lockdown, but it is actually an incredible privilege that we can go into a lockdown because lockdowns save lives. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And if you can save lives when you get through a lockdown, you know, you can all come together again. And so they are well worth doing lockdowns, but some countries just don't have that luxury so Indonesia, for instance, people will literally starve to death if they can't go out uh, and make money to feed their family. So the choice for people in Indonesia is much starker. It, it really is a choice between feeding their family um, or getting COVID and, and the hospitals are overwhelmed. You can't get into hospitals. Um, by and large, people are just dying at home because they are absolutely over capacity. And we see this in Sydney already. You know, Australia has the best healthcare in the world and it gets overwhelmed by you know relatively few cases so you can imagine here if we didn't have a lockdown just how many lives we'd be losing absolutely and do you think the the zero cases approach um is still something that's feasible for australia i think it should be i think absolutely that should be the goal and i think you know, if I was in charge, I would just make the lockdown a really tough one. I would look across the ditch to our neighbours in New Zealand and see what they're doing there. There is no takeaway food. There's no takeaway coffee. Um, you know, in Melbourne, we're not supposed to use the play equipment at parks, but on the weekend, there was just hundreds of kids using that. Water fountains are still um, in use. And so I think the goal should absolutely be you know, getting those case numbers right down. And the way to do that quickly is with an incredibly tough lockdown, not, you know, a more um, um, relaxed lockdown that Australia tends to have compared to somewhere like New Zealand. And I just imagine in a few weeks' time, New Zealand will be coming out of their lockdown and, and potentially, you know, Australia will still be there. For sure. And I certainly agree. I think we're going to be operating under a public health response for quite some time. Um, and there's been some recent discussion, particularly in New South Wales, about the Doherty modelling, um, which gives us some indication of what uh, a post-lockdown Australia could look like once we hit the 70% vaccination rate. What do you think are some expectations people should have about opening up after lockdowns? I think for me, I just look at what happens in the UK. So they have incredibly high vaccination rates. It's something like 90% for over 18s or over 16s, really, really high rates of vaccination, but they're still having over 100 deaths a day. And so even at those high vaccination rates, it's not like suddenly we can all live, you know, happily without the threat of death. It is still there. 
And so I think, you know, that, you know, is quite concerning. And, you know, when we've still got a chance, particularly in Victoria, to get those case numbers right down, um, you know, I would hope that that's what we're aiming for rather than having to, to be in a case like, like the UK is. And, and in the US that we're not hearing very much in the news about there, but, you know, the, the death numbers are still staggering and people elsewhere have seemed to um, be accepting of that, like, you know, only 100 deaths today as if that's something that we should be happy about or comfortable with. For sure. I think the, the statistics that are largely being portrayed in the news um, are moving on beyond case numbers now and more onto hospitalizations and, and vaccine rates. Um, but on that thought, why do you think then are we going for, for 70% vaccination before we open up? Do you think it, it should be more like 90%? Oh, I think I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think, you know, in, in a lot of those kind of numbers that looking at either adults over the age of 18 or over 16, but as we know, you know, with the Delta strain, that, that even children can be impacted by that. So I'd like to see vaccination rates where they're talking about whole of population or at least, you know, over 12, um, you know, have some sense of, of being a little bit more comfortable with any kind of opening up. For sure. I, I certainly agree. Um, and so we've, we've entered, I think, past the 200-day the lockdown mark at the moment, over 6 million vaccines administered in New South Wales last week. If you had any pieces of advice for our viewers on how to cope with the mental strain of the lockdown, what would you say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Giving some advice that, that hopefully myself you know, can take as, as well. I mean, I think one of the really disconcerting things is just the uncertainty. I think in previous lockdowns where, you know, a really strict, tough lockdown, you start to see the numbers come down and you can kind of deal with that when you, where there's a bit of certainty. Um, and at the moment, it's just so up in the air, we don't have any kind of certainty. And I think that's the really hard, hard thing uh, to deal with. And I guess I take a little bit of solace in some things by thinking if we can all get through this, whatever comes after that, we'll all be thinking back to, well, we got through COVID, you got through COVID, you know, this is nothing compared to that. Um, and also thinking a little bit about when my kids grow up, they'll be, you know, they often ask their grandparents about, um, you know, their, their grandma's in their 90s, so she lived through Second World War, and um, they asked her about, you know, what was that like? And I was like, well, when you get older, little kids will be asking you what was it like to live through COVID. So trying to trying to think long term and think we will get through this there is light at the end of the tunnel and we'll be looking back on this as a really tough time but it'll be you know making you know we get a lot of good character out of these things and I think more immediately just trying to find little little things that that um can get us through so just a simple walk I went walking this morning and all the blossoms are out and you've got that lovely fragrance you know so just taking those small moments to try and centre yourself uh, as well as looking past all of this and, and imagining what life is going to be like when we can travel and see all our loved ones again and see all of our loved ones again so that people aren't missing, you know, that we've done the really hard yards now so that when we come back together, we are all together. It is so important to, to appreciate the little things right now. Um, and just on that note of, of certainty and moving forwards, what changes would you hope to see made um, particularly for essential workers like childcare and aged care workers 
uh, long term now that we've sort of endured a, a long pandemic that's really exacerbated some of the, the problems in the system? Yeah, that is such a great question and my hopeful self would hope that we as a global society see the work of essential workers are very often our most poorly paid, um, our most precarious, and yet we call them essential workers, the cleaners and and other people who are doing all of the things that are absolutely essential uh, to our health and well-being. So I would love to see some systemic change, you know, from the government level that recognises uh, that people doing all these jobs deserve, at the very minimum, a living wage, that we're thinking about more issues around equity and equality, and that we really question how some of these big companies that are getting job seeker can take all of that money, and yet agencies are going after someone who was overpaid $50 for a, a welfare benefit or something. So I'd love to imagine that there's a, a pretty radical restructuring in terms of how we value people and how we compensate them for the essential work they're doing. It's Unlikely to happen, I think, Mostly we'll go back to our old ways that have really made this COVID situation worse for so many people. But in my hopeful self, I'd love to, to see that we could we could rethink our priorities in terms of, you know, how we reward essential workers and others. Certainly. Radical restructure, repaying your essential workers, <laughs> um, essential wages, I think is a mm-hmm. good step in, in the right direction. Um, and looking forwards uh, to, to global travel, when do you think the borders will, will open up, particularly now that we're seeing um, a resurgence in cases in, in countries such as Indonesia and, and India? Yeah, I, so much of my work is based in Indonesia and I just wonder when it will be possible um, to get there and just as importantly, when it will be possible for people to come here. It might be that more quickly Australians can go overseas and, and return than, than other people coming coming in. It just seems a really a long way off. Like 2022 is, you know, there's no chance, I think, of any kind of, of international travel. But hopefully by 2023, there's some kind of systems in place that we can, you know, do what Aussies do and, and go overseas and um, and do all of that travel and welcome people to our shores as well. But in the in the short short term, I don't see that happening. Certainly. And and do you think we should be vaccinating our neighbours in the Asia Pacific as well? Well, one of the tragedies, you know, of course, is that you know Scott Morrison's talking about all these extra vaccines that Australia has got, but but these have come from somewhere, and these have come from mm. poor countries that that you know arguably need them much more urgently than does Australia. And so, you know, Australia cannot be in this alone. If we have a completely vaccinated population, it doesn't help us as community players on a global bend. So Indonesia, for instance, you know, can't even count the number of deaths. So any statistics reported from that country are, you know, radically underreported because they just don't have the facilities for testing or for counting um, and so I think Australia needs to do a lot more in terms of, you know, looking out for our neighbours. And I think that's one of the, the heartbreaking things that here in Australia we have this luxury of lockdown, that we can go into a hard lockdown and protect ourselves really quickly. And we're receiving all of these vaccines that, you know, many of them were meant for somewhere else. 
And yet people are still, you know, pretty selfishly, I think, protesting against that. And it's just a slap in the face for countries like Indonesia that don't have that luxury. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a real wake-up call of we are so privileged to be in this lockdown and I think it's worth commending everyone for, for staying safe and for protecting our community. Um, and I think that's a great note to finish on and um, continue to, to stay home and do your part. Mm-hmm. And Sharon, it's been a real pleasure um, interviewing you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thank, thank you so much. And I might just end with this word, just, you know, on that importance of looking out for each other. There was, I'm an anthropologist and one of the famous or infamous anthropologists was Margaret Mead. And she once was asked, what is the sign of civilization? And people expected her to say, you know, great cities or great sewage systems or something. And she said it was finding the bones of someone who had had a broken femur, a thigh bone, and it had healed. And it was the healing... You can't heal without the support of your community and your friends and your family. Um, And so this is a lovely way of of really emphasising that what makes humanity great is our ability to look out for and care for each other. So um, I think that's a good good message to try and and, um, go forward with for all of us to to think beyond ourselves and look out for our neighbours and friends and family. That's a a fantastic message to take away from today's show. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Sharon Davies there from Monash University speaking on the lockdown here in Victoria and what's going on in the rest of the world. We'll be right back after this. Thanks to Jacob from Monday Breakfast bringing us a great discussion with Sharon Davies there about a lot of things, about lockdown, about um, vaccinations and about looking out for our local um, community but also for, um, for those who come from neighbouring countries. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, It's just hit 20 to 8. Uh, We're going to go to a track now, a new song by Melbourne local Maya Harasido. Uh, called I Know. Uh, Maya was born in Tokyo but raised in Melbourne uh, and continues to be a promising uh, musician for the country. She mostly blends um, pop, soul and R&B and this is her most recent song. So uh, enjoy this one. Quit playing around and just hit me up 
Cause you've kept me waiting for long enough I know that you said you don't wanna rush oh, no. It ain't that deep, I'm just trying to fuck That was Maya Harasido with I Know. So last week, uh, a report was released um, and there was an article in The Guardian detailing the project that the report was on, which is Restoring Financial Safety, the Transforming Financial Security Project. Um, and this project was a partnership between Community Legal Centre, West Justice, and Macaulay Community Services for Women. And the whole point of the project was to address economic abuse experienced by victim survivors um, of family violence. Um, so today on the show, we have Dacia Bella, who is a lawyer and program manager at West Justice and one of the authors of the report that was released last week. Um, welcome to the show, Dacia. Hi, Carnegie. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about what economic abuse and financial abuse looks like? Yeah, sure. So economic abuse is a form of family violence and it involves control over a person's ability to acquire, to use and to maintain economic resources. So therefore it can threaten a person's economic security and their ability to be self-sufficient. 
So it really presents in many different ways. Um, however, some examples that we see most often through our clinic are coercing someone to take out a loan under their name or deliberately accumulating debt um, in someone else's name or accruing infringement. Yeah, and does this uh, predominantly affect women? It does. So the only um, the only people that we serve through our clinic is women, but as you know, um, family violence in general is, is a gendered issue. Right, and so can you explain to us and our listeners a little bit about how this model works and how it aims to address the issues of economic abuse in family violence? Yeah, so... Um, Economic abuse is cited as the number one reason why a woman returns to a violent relationship and most of the women that we see report that it's really difficult for them to move on with their lives um, while stress and debt's hanging over their head and often the effects of financial abuse can really endure long after someone has physically left a relationship. So we found that it was really important to respond to economic abuse so that we can ensure the safety of victims, survivors, um, and ensure their financial independence so that they can move on with their lives and meet their own needs as well as the needs of their children. So the model is um, it's a client-centred service and it's designed with the aim of providing vital assistance to victim survivors in an environment of trust and safety. So uh, we partnered with a local community uh, with a local family violence service called Macaulay Community Services for Women. And um, in doing that, we embedded a lawyer and financial counsellor into one of their transitional accommodation sites. So whilst we're providing the lawyer and the financial counsellor, Macaulay's also simultaneously supporting that woman with social work support, employment support, um, counselling, health services, whatever it may be. Um, so I guess, in a way, the model acts as a one-stop shop um, at a time that a person needs it most. It reduces re-storytelling, it reduces referral fatigue, but most importantly, um, we can all work together and work with the woman to help them recover from financial abuse and family violence so that they can really take those next steps towards recovery. Yeah, and I can imagine how helpful this would actually be for someone who is exhausted and you know, going through one of the toughest things a person can go through um, and to just come to one place to get all the information and all their resources would be quite life-changing, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like, I guess our, our results probably speak for themselves in a lot of ways. But um, when we were assisting our clients, we focused on kind of three key outcomes. They were financial independence, safety and housing and mental health and well-being. So um, in two years, we were able to assist um, around 137 women with their legal and financial issues, um, but we were also able to disentangle them from approximately $900,000 worth of um, financial issues. So that is either in clearing debt or gaining compensation, um, which on average is is a massive $11,000 per client that we assisted with financial problems. So obviously that can be um, life-changing um, and it goes a huge way towards improving that person's financial safety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what what has the feedback been like from the other services that you're linked in with and working with? Yeah, so that's an interesting point because we, um, we didn't just look at the benefits to our clients. Um, we also looked at uh, the benefits to family violence service providers too um, and we found that 
it it improves um, two things. First of all, easily accessible legal and financial counselling relieves pressure from family violence service providers. So um, that's really because services um, could then spend more time on their core work rather than doing things like chasing up assistance from a lawyer or a financial counsellor. And it also reduced that referral merry-go-round. Um, and then we also, of course, used our clients' experiences um, to inform and influence lasting systems changes. Um, that's within different industries and government. So um, the point of that is to be able to try and improve responses to economic abuse um, and in some cases even prevent it from happening in the first place. So it sounds like partnering with sort of different services in the community sector is um, a huge, hugely important thing for this project. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, like basically we have a model that has been tried, it's been proved and now it's been codified. Um, so we think that it should be scaled across the state, um, which is why we would be now looking to partner with government to help fund the program so that we can secure its longevity and essentially so that women across the state can access vital services like this. Um, yeah, so to date we've been able to effectively um, approve this model through philanthropic support, um, but the report now provides the evidence and the narrative for government to partner with the community sector to work with us to sustainably fund this work um, and essentially ensure that we're breaking through the cycles and impacts of family violence and economic abuse. Yeah, that absolutely sounds like um, the clients would have benefited greatly already. Um, have you had any feedback from your clients uh, about how the whole service has been for them? Yeah, we have had um, general feedback as well. So um, I guess interestingly, it's not just um, financial um, benefits that we managed to gain for our clients, but we also managed to get benefits for our clients in the areas of um, safety and housing and mental health and well-being. So our clients reported back to us that um, there was a 52% increase, that they were now confident that they had long-term or a secure place to live following help from the clinic. And we think that's, um, that's linked to the fact that obviously freeing up um, economic resources, so more money, allows people to, um, to afford stable housing on an ongoing basis. Um, <clears throat> but also, I guess, the clinic's intervention also meant that women were freed from that power and control that the perpetrator um, had subjected over, the, over them for, for a long period of time. Um, and our clients also reported back to us that they now didn't have to worry about legal and financial issues preventing them from moving on where that was a previous barrier. So we can see here that there's, um, there's obvious benefits um, outside of just the financial benefits too. It's really kind of improved people's mental health and well-being as well as um, shown some links to um, increases in stable housing as well. Yeah, and I guess that really shows the importance as well of not siloing the different things, so not having one place to go for economic abuse and one place to go for um, mental health referrals um, because they are all interconnected. I mean, of course, having your debt cleared while you're trying to leave a controlling abusive relationship is going to have a hugely positive impact on your mental health and your future. Yeah, 100%. And, um, like, just providing one support system or one support service to someone after they've left a violent relationship is only going to 
go so far. Um, it can only kind of address that one problem. But when you work um, collaboratively and in partnership like this, you really get to see the benefits of, um, of holistic support and assistance so that you can try and help someone recover from multiple angles. Because people don't just leave a violent relationship and then that's kind of it. They don't just need the support in one area. There's so many different areas that people need um, assistance and support in. Exactly. Did you find um, in working with your clients that it was uh, sort of a difficult thing to explain the connections between them all or was it quite, you know, clear to your clients that they were all connected? I think in some cases a lot of people hadn't um, even realised that they were experiencing mm. that level of economic abuse and that's probably because uh, economic abuse is, or can be a difficult concept to understand and it's not, it's not widely known. A lot of people obviously know that um, physical violence equals family violence, but it's often these other kind of more silent types of family violence that people don't realise are happening to them until they have that conversation. So, um, yeah, in some cases they didn't know. Um, but then uh, as well, I guess it's a, it's a whole process, it's a whole journey. So um, they may slowly learn things as, um, as their recovery continues yeah absolutely um what sort of initiatives or uh you know what, what are you going to do to make sure that this continues to be effective um if it is kind of scaled at a larger larger scale yeah so that's why we're looking to partner with um with government on this critical work um i, I really think if we are genuine about breaking the cycles and impacts of family violence um, and reducing the enormous impacts that it has in society, then um, then it's vital for government and industry to partner with the community sector um, is to invest in proven initiatives like the Transforming Financial Security Project. I mean, currently there may be some services out there that are offered in isolation, but to our knowledge, there's no comprehensive program like this in the state um, to help address people's um, economic abuse. Um, and to help them move on with their financial recovery. Absolutely. Um, well, that's all we have time for today, Dacia. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning and explaining um, your project and the report that you've authored. We will include a link to the report um, in our show notes, and we will include a few other links to more information on economic abuse and family violence as well. Thanks, Dacia. Thank you, Carnegie. Bye. So that was Dacia Bella from Community Legal Centre West Justice talking to us about um, a project she has recently written a report on um, helping women with economic and financial abuse. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
Always Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Huawei's Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Huawei's Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Huawei's Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. supports 3CR. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. You're back on 3CR. So an estimated 405,000 women aged 45 and over are at risk of homelessness in Australia. Housing for the Age Action Group and the University of Melbourne are putting on the online forum At Risk 2021 to discuss the policy changes needed to improve older women's housing outcomes today and in the future. Here to speak to us about the forum is Fiona from Housing for the Age Action Group. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Fiona. Thank you. Uh, Fiona, could you please begin by introducing yourself a bit more and telling us more about the Housing for Age Action Group? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name's Fiona and I'm the Executive Officer for Housing for the Age Action Group. Um, we're a community organisation based in Victoria and we uh, have had a focus on housing justice for older people since the early 80s. Um, we are very committed to getting some good housing outcomes to address the growing need for older people who are facing homelessness. Um, and we also run the service which is called Home at Last, which houses around 150 older people a year in long-term, um, mainly public housing. So we've been around for a long time um, and we're trying to basically change the system as well as changing individual people's lives. Thanks for that, Fiona. So the statistic that I mentioned earlier, 405,000 women um, mm. age 45 and over being at risk of homelessness is quite startling. Yeah. What is it that puts older people and specifically women at risk of homelessness? Yeah, so last year, ourselves and the University of Adelaide released this report that looked at a whole range of risk factors for older women. Um, and they're things like um, having 
part-time work throughout their lives, so low levels of superannuation, um, living in expensive private rental, um, living alone. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are obviously more at risk for a range of reasons. Um, people have experienced elder abuse or family violence. So it's a whole lot of different risk factors that place women um, in housing insecurity as they get older and often we have women coming to us who are in their late 50s, early 60s who have worked part-time or even full-time, um, saved a little bit of money and then all of a sudden find themselves living in private rental, having lost their job and really, really struggling. Um, the size of the problem is really hidden because older women don't necessarily front up at services. They, they do a lot of things to try and get by before um, I guess reaching out for help. So there's people living um, with friends and family or sleeping on couches or doing all sorts of things. Um, there's a lot of people in Airbnbs and house sitting and pet sitting up until the pandemic. So this problem is really hidden and we think it's growing. Um, and yeah, that's why we're holding this forum. Speaking of it being quite a hidden issue, um, I guess it is you know, quite at odds with with um, that popular, I guess, narrative of older people mm. being um, quite homeowners. secure. Yeah. yeah and yeah. homeowners, you're right. Um, so this really challenges that stereotype. Yeah, and I think that is the stereotype, that baby boomers have these big old houses and, and they're taking up all the space and they've got all the property. But actually, um, it's a lot more to do with a lifetime of kind of disadvantage and poverty for a lot of people. And so there's a whole cohort of older people who have been low-paid jobs um, with caring responsibilities and and just haven't managed to enter the property market. And they're really, really disadvantaged. So you just can't survive um, on the pension um, in the private rental market mm. and the housing quality as well is really, really poor in that lower end of the rental market. So if you have some sort of, um, you know, you go to hospital and you have some sort of accident and you can't be discharged from hospital because your private rental has a crappy bath, mm. what are you going to do? You're going to end up in residential care prematurely or um, just nowhere to go. So, yeah, I think it's a lot about um, poverty and class more than age. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people don't really want to think about things like that anymore but it really is um it all comes to a head for a lot of older women definitely and you did list you know quite a few risk factors there and of course we see with a lot of people that it's not just one that they have mm. you know it's it's multiple and it and it accumulates over time so yeah um, it yeah it really is quite um challenging to to navigate the system um where are we policy-wise? Have there been any changes made to support older women at risk of homelessness? Well, that's one of the reasons we want to hold this forum is because we know that awareness is being raised about the issue. You're seeing it on the 7.30 report and, and you know, in the various papers um, and people are talking about older women being at risk of homelessness, but we're not actually seeing any policy outcomes. We're not seeing any change. So last year we held a forum. Um, there was about over 500 people registered for that and about 350 people across the country um, logged on to our online forum and really clearly wanted action. There was lots and lots of chat going going on and lots and lots of desire to kind of connect and make a difference. So this is our follow-up to that and, and we're hoping that we can move from just raising awareness and into actual policy change um, and, and, have some, and have some real 
immediate outcomes for not just not just women now, but women into the future, the next 20 years or so. Definitely, because we are going to see, uh, I guess, the effects of COVID, mm-hmm. um, not just in the next couple of years, but, but ongoing. Um, yeah. So, so this online forum is going to take place online on the 17th of September. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about it, the different breakout sessions um, and any keynote speakers? Yeah, so we were pretty keen to listen to what people that attended the last forum wanted to do, wanted, what topics they wanted us to cover. So we've got three um, breakout sessions. Um, we've got the political panel, because obviously politicians, they're the decision makers that have got a lot of influence in this area. So we have um, on the political panel, we've got um, Tanya Plibersek from the Labor Party and Larissa Waters from the Greens and Zali Stegel, who's an independent. And then we also have Penny Lemus, who's an older woman that's got lived experience of homelessness. So hopefully we'll hear some um, ideas of what the parties are bringing to that and the the whole forum will be opened by um, the Minister for um, Superannuation and Financial Services, which her name's Senator Jane Hume. So that's the political part of it. But as well as the politics, we're going to have a session on older women and housing and domestic violence, which will be convened by Jess Hill. And we have another one on solutions. So we often hear about what we can do about it. There's lots of talk of different types of things like tiny houses and, and the rest of it. So we'll have um, have a whole heap of people there talking about some of their solutions, including people from the Brisbane Housing Company. Um, there's the Northern Rivers Community Gateway and we've got the, the chair of the Aboriginal Housing, um, Community Housing Limited as well. And then the last panel is about action. So we've We've chosen some people that have had really good campaign outcomes for their different issues and they're going to come and talk about what they think works in terms of making a difference and influencing decision makers. Yeah, um, it, it sounds like you're, this, this online forum is really trying to target all the different areas um, and have everything from, like you said, political discussion to... Um, local solutions and then mm. action. Um, it sounds like you're trying to cover a lot, which is great. Um, yeah. uh, and I can already see, you know, clicking on the, the website that there's already, you know, some online discussion happening. Yeah. Um, so where can people go if they want to share their thoughts or ask questions? So they can, that's the really good thing about this as well. We've actually created an online platform where people can share ideas and connect with each other. Mm. So no matter where you live, if you've got access to the internet, which I know is a barrier for a lot of people, but if you do, then you can jump online and ask questions of the panel members or make your comments or share resources or share ideas about what works and doesn't work. Um, so you can get onto our website, which is oldertenants.org.au and look for the events page. And then from there, you can go register and check it out. It's going to be good. Great. Um, and we can put that link in our show notes later this morning as well. Um, I guess for you, Fiona, what um, what outcomes uh, would you like to see from, um, I guess, policy changes in the next few years? What what would be an ideal? Um, an ideal yeah, world. Yeah. yeah. I think we need to have immediate investment in public housing, um, and it needs to be a lot more than what we're seeing. So... Although some of the governments across Australia are making some investments, there really needs to be rapid, rapid um, building of public housing to address the current and the future need. And in Victoria, we're lucky to have um, 
that's particular public housing that's targeted for older people, so 55-plus housing. Yeah. Um, so that would be great if that could be rolled out across the whole country. Um, and also we have here in Victoria eligibility criteria. So if you're over 55, you automatically get prioritised. And that's not the case in other states. It's 80 in New South Wales. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'd like to see that happen across Australia, but also more public housing and more low-cost retirement housing for people who maybe have a little bit of savings but not enough to buy anywhere. Definitely. Um, and lastly, there are obviously these are all structural systemic changes that need to take place, but mm. is there anything that we can do, our listeners can do, to support um, older people um, in, in this situation? I think it's really good for people to be aware of their own internalised ageism, I guess. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so so every time you sort of have that instinct of thinking that baby boomers are taking up all the space or that there's a whole lot of, you know, um, older people that have got a lot of advantage compared to younger people, just don't go there. <laughs> like, it's, it's really, it's quite hard to interrogate your own assumptions about growing older and older people have just as much value um, and mu as much to contribute as anyone. So I think just on a personal level, that's what people can do. And then politically, of course, jump online and sign all the petitions and tweet all the pollies and do everything you can and yeah. bring housing as much as you can to the forefront because housing is fundamental to all of our health and wellbeing. Definitely. And I think, like you said earlier, you know, it's it's about class, it's about um, about race, it's about gender, it's it's intersectional. So right. um, it's very easy for, for people to um, stereotype, um, you know, baby boomers, older people yeah. into being, you know, wealthy homeowners, but that's not the case for, right. for a yeah. lot of our population. Well, thank you so much, Fiona, for joining us this morning. We'll pop the link to the event in our show notes. Um, but please, everyone, if you can um, attend the At Risk 2021 online forum on September the 17th. Thank you so much, Fiona. Thank you for having me. So that was um, Fiona from the Housing for the Age Action Group. They're speaking to us about um, about homelessness among women aged 45 and over, uh, as well as the online forum that's going to take place next month. Um, it sounds like there are going to be a lot of great guests and a lot of um, interesting and important discussions um, being had there. Um, we'll be back right after this. It's time to speak up, Luciano speak out, and Georgia speak Keys, loud. Supported From by the Australian Queer Archive, archive presents Queerways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. 
I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. So we're now going to go to a uh, track and... um, Oh, actually, no, we're not going to go to a track. I'm going to hand it over to Genevieve. Sorry, I was just waving my hands, just filling the air. Um, Yeah, we've actually just gotten a hold of um, a very special guest, um, uh, Gab McIntosh, who is um, the education spokesperson for uh, a newly found uh, party, the Indigenous Party of Australia, which was founded in New South Wales by Uncle Owen Wyman, a pun... Kinji man from Wulkania, uh, with the purpose of more Indigenous voices in politics. And although there is, I guess everyone has seen, there's growing interest in um, issues regarding First Nations people, a lot of the parties that we see today haven't really brung about the change that they uh, have promised. Um, And uh, this party aims to rectify this. Uh, So Gab's on the show to speak to us about um, the newly found Indigenous parties' origins, uh, their policies, and their efforts to now try to make an impact in Victoria. Thanks so much for joining us, Gab. Thank you, Genevieve. Um, just wanted to start off because I believe that the Indigenous Party is relatively new. Can you talk us through about how the Indigenous Party of Australia started? Um, well, as you pointed out, it's New South Wales. Uh, in origin, and around about oh, 12 months ago, um, a school for Indigenous kids in Broken Hill, Moore, Kenya, who don't go to school, who basically have rejected their regular schools, um, and I was principal of the school that had formed for those kids, Eagle Arts Vocational College, uh, was suddenly and unaccountably closed by the state government, by the Liberal state government. Um, And we scrounged around for money we didn't have to take them to court. We lost. We begged for the school to stay open. We're talking, you know, 65 um, young people, predominantly Indigenous in Broken Hill and Wilcannia, who were definitely not going to go on to any other school. TAFE had lost a lot of its funding. There are not many jobs out in the regions. Uh, particularly the further away you get from the big cities, um, it was really like almost signing a death warrant for them. We we all know that education is the key to breaking out of poverty. So why would the state government do this? It turned out that some of our paperwork wasn't quite right. The Anti-Discrimination Board bought into the issue and said no to the government. No, if you close this school, you are in breach of six counts of the Anti-Discrimination Act, and I've actually got the paperwork for that if anyone's interested in, in looking at it. Um, and nothing, nothing, nothing would would, um, would sway them. Um, so after the school closed, this end of 2018, we all sort of licked our wounds for a while. And um, finally last year, Uncle Owen and a number of Indigenous people were uh, travelling up the New South Wales coast, and I said, well, can we have a meeting and think, what in the hell do we do next? Um, and it was a joke, to be quite frank. One of the um, 
indigenous elders from the Newcastle area as, as a joke said, oh, you know what we should do with these buggers? We should start our own political party. That'd stop it, wouldn't it? <laughs> and um, I think we all just looked at each other and went, why hasn't anybody thought of this? It was like a, <laughs> you know, Newton and the apple. It was a really sort of dying moment. Um, and I said to Uncle Owen, um, he's our convener, I said, oh, and he said, oh, don't worry, he's always saying crazy things. <laughs> so um, that was that, and on they went in, on their wanting their way up to see more Indigenous communities located in the um, South Coast of Hinting for Bundjalung country. Um, and a couple of days later, you know, I just couldn't rest. <laughs> I was just sort of tossing at night. A couple of days later, I rang up and said, look, you know what, that is not a stupid idea. I had a bit of a look into it. I said, you know, if you do this and we stand, you just sort of stand, we could even get our money back. It's not just a case of, you know, spend a lot of money and get nowhere. Um, and he said, oh, for God's sake, let's just do it. So that's how it started, really from a kind of a joke about what, what is left when you get, um, you just people are attacked by government. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and whether you can never make any progress no matter what you do. And, of course, there are other issues like this too, you know. Um, the Menindee Lake system where all those fish were killed, including heritage fish. Supposedly some of them were 100 years old. Murray Cod and they just, you know, um, died. And, you know, indigenous legal centres get closed at the drop of a hat in, up in the north coast. And it's happening everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and and what do Indigenous people do? And there's a lot of, as you pointed out, goodwill to help Indigenous people. But when it hits, the rubber hits the road, there's nothing there. Definitely. And that's something that I wanted to um, talk about in the next question. Um, obviously, a lot of parties that we see now kind of throw around this, um, you know, support for Indigenous people, support for their issues, but not much has changed. Um, what are the sort of, I guess, policies and um, principles that, you know, you started um, the Indigenous Party of Australia with? What kind of aims um, does the party okay. have? We've, we've kept it really simple because remember that um, our party has both Indigenous and non-Indigenous members and, and everyone's welcome. I'm, I'm non-Indigenous, for example. Um, but we wanted to make sure that any policies we had were... were um, able to be understood and you have to remember that Indigenous people, particularly older Indigenous people uh, over 35 and in the regional areas don't always have great interest they don't always, not always great readers so we didn't want some long complicated policy so we've got 13 points basically and they cover the sorts of things that are a problem wherever you go so the big one is number one probably environment and, and sacred sites um, all across the country WA stands out, also here in New South Wales, you know, there's always some piece of land that's under threat that's important to Indigenous people um, and that, they, again, they just get no say about what's going to happen to it. Um, in the central coast, New South Wales, there's a land, piece of land right adjacent to a national park. We've recently discovered um, some more um, carvings there and they're about to bulldoze it for how? Um, when we all know WA and the shock over there with um, what what happened uh, sorry early in the morning when my brain's gone <laughs> <laughs> the um, the big one the mining company that just bulldozed uh, I think it was human remains wasn't it, mm. it was extraordinary 
So that's number one, probably. Very close behind that is incarceration. Um, again, it's a big issue wherever you go. In the Northern Territory, of course, it's huge. 90% of young people incarcerated are Indigenous. Um, you guys in Victoria have got the best. I think something only like 30% of your jail population is Indigenous. Um, and it, wherever you go, it's the same story. The jails are full of Indigenous people, mostly for quite minor crimes like refusing to pay a fine or maybe getting in a brawl in the street, um, so some sort of altercation. Uh, they don't have the money for fancy lawyers and, of course, the legal services tended to be uh, under successive governments have been wound back rather than uh, be bolstered up. So that's a big one. Um, it's closely behind that is taking the children from their families. Now, unfortunately, in Victoria, you've got the worst record on mm. this one. The worst record, which is disappointing given that of all the states, Victoria seems to be making some stride into really listening to Indigenous people and acting. But that's a huge one. You know, children taken away from their families, the second generation of stolen uh, kids. Um, and again, everyone says, oh, this is so terrible. What is anyone doing about it? Mm, yeah. Um, so um, the other one that's in the loop, um, it gets it further down, again, a bigger issue in New South Wales is, is education. We've really kind of come to grips with the fact that the kind of education that is offered in the average school, uh, high school in particular, is not really working for a significant number of Indigenous kids. They simply leave. They vote with their feet. Um, and they're good at evading... Um, you know, truancy officers and people of that kind, because they've got plenty of relatives they can go stay with. Um, again, the further away you get from the big cities, the, the clearer the problem is. Lots and lots of Indigenous kids don't like schools, and they don't like them because Indigenous people have very little say, if any at all, as to what is actually going on in the classroom. Yeah. They have very little say in it. That's not to say that some principals aren't out there trying hard and doing good, getting good results. And we're not trying to undermine those people, but we want a light shone on the fact that huge numbers of Indigenous kids just don't go. And it's not because they don't care. It's because they're locked out. Their voices are locked out of the education system. Yeah, yeah. it seems like the party has some really key policies that, you know, um, really need to be pushed in uh, places like uh, Parliament. And I think one of the most important things as well is, you know, representation. Democracy is all about representation and representation of uh, the public. And, you know, we need Indigenous people in Parliament for proper representation. I wanted to speak about also um, there is a minimum membership number that the government has put on uh, political parties, of uh, which is 1,500 uh to run in uh, to run as candidates at the next federal election, um, considering this, what do you need people to do to help the Indigenous Party of Australia? We are desperate. If someone listening to this program today would like to put up their hand and say, "Yep, I'll help raise your numbers," because what happened? This is another story mm. <laughs> within the Indigenous Party. It's very interesting. You'll never be bored. <laughs> um, one of the things that happened was that we, in our we first few months, we got something like six hundred members. But half of them were not on the electoral roll. And the reason why Indigenous people don't get on the electoral roll is, again, fear. Fear that if their name is out there in some government register, 
that they're more liable to have their children taken away from them, that they could easily be chased up for some fine that's outstanding. So there's a fear of being appearing on too many um, government registers because it'll come back to bite them. That's what history suggests. So what we discovered was we had, you know, big swathes of Indigenous people who, who really wanted to support us and are currently members, but they're not on the electoral roll, so we can't count. So yeah. um, that was a huge um, push. And then only to discover now, we're, we're about one week away from being registered fully. Um, advertisements have appeared in The Age and other um, uh, papers in capital cities, um, you know, a- announcing that we are, you know, imminent, so to speak. Um, and then all of a sudden, boom, this happens. 1,500 memberships. So, and, and, of course, a very short time span. Um, you know, most people want to think about do they want to join a party? They don't necessarily want to be sort of rushed into it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very big undermining of democracy, we believe. For sure. Um, um, you know, but, yeah. No, and I was just going to say, just because um, we're fast running out of time, Gab, and I really want to push this home for people to, you know, sign up and become a member and look more deeply into the Indigenous Party of Australia, especially here in Victoria, where I believe there's a little bit of a gap. Um, where can people read more and sign up uh, to the party? So if you go to www.indigenouspartyofaustralia.com, you can sign up there on, there's a form, electoral form from the Electoral Commission. You can fill that in and that'll get you on board. If there's anyone out there who thinks, oh gosh, I'd really like to you know, help this new party pull in 100 new members in the next month or so, I'd be thrilled. And can I give my number on, over, the, over the program? For now? sure. If I you're like comfortable it. with, um, yeah, your number going out for sure, be my guest. Yeah. So it's 0455. Send a text. Send a text to me, Gab, and um, just say, hey, you know, can we help? Also, we'd love someone to stand in Victoria. We're not sure what's happened, but we don't seem to have connected very well with the Indigenous community in Victoria. It could be because you guys are ahead of the game and there's a sense that's amongst your local Indigenous people, that Victoria's already making gains. There's not such a pressing need. I don't know. You know, we, we don't really know. But we haven't been able to connect as well in Victoria as we have in other states. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you uh, heard it here, listeners. Please go on to the Indigenous Party of Australia's website or text Gab or call Gab. Um, we'll pop your number up on our uh, show notes and website as well. Um, but, yeah, we urge you to try to get their, them to 1,500. But thank you so much, Gab. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and about the Indigenous Party of Australia. I hope we speak again and you can help us find a candidate. Absolutely. (laughs) I'd I'd be glad to. Um, That was Gab McIntosh, the education spokesperson for the Indigenous Party of Australia. We have come to the end of the show, uh, unfortunately. It's been absolutely jam-packed. Just briefly going over what uh, we discussed, um, Carnegie had a wonderful interview Yeah, I spoke with uh, lawyer and program manager Darcia Abella from West Justice about um, a project and a report into that project about economic abuse for victim survivors of family violence. Uh, And then I spoke with Fiona from um, the 
<clears throat> sorry, the Housing for the Age Action Group, talking about uh, yeah, women over 45 being um, at risk of homelessness and their upcoming event at risk 2021, which is an online forum. Please attend. Yeah, and you just heard from Gab McIntosh, who's spokesperson for Indigenous Party of Australia, urging people to please sign up and become a membership. Um, it is uh, completely wanting to get Indigenous people into Parliament, representation, um, and yeah, there's a huge gap in respondents from Victoria, so they're really urging people uh, to get on board with that. All right. Well, up coming up next, as always, is Accent of Women. Uh, hope everyone stay safe, stay, uh, I guess, as occupied as you can, and look out for each other, be kind to each other during this lockdown. Uh, we got this, Melbourne. And keep it locked to 3CR.